Good afternoon from a windy Washington, D.C., which has just seen what would be the fourth COVID response legislation package blocked in the United States Senate. Thank you for joining FMC's virtual roundtable. My name is Paul Kincaid, and I'm the Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC. We hope you've enjoyed the virtual roundtable programming for the past few Thursdays, and will continue to do so. Some exciting news, along with archives of the program being available on our website at usafmc.org. We've also turned Virtual Roundtable into a podcast. You can search for FMC Virtual Roundtable on Spotify and soon on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll listen back to any discussions you might have missed. Like many cities throughout America, Washington, D.C. is under a stay-at-home order. While our economy has been handcuffed by these orders, we know that at some point, potentially within a couple months, American consumers will return to the marketplace and suppliers of goods will strain to get back into production mode to put those goods on the store shelves. With the massive economic impact they've taken, we know manufacturers will want to produce as fast as possible. However, the store and its suppliers aren't the only critical paths to getting our economy humming again. Ensuring the ability to get products to market and making certain that producers have the components and resources they need to make in products are just a couple parts of the global supply chain that will determine how fast our businesses can actually get back up to speed. That's the discussion we'll have on today's virtual roundtable. Our discussion will be moderated by former Congressman Randy Nagabauer. Congressman Nagabauer was a Republican from Texas who served 14 years in Congress and was a leader on the Financial Services Committee. Our panel today will be three experts in various aspects of supply chains and their impact on the American and global economies. Joining us from Germany is Dr. Stormy Annika Mildner. Dr. Mildner is the head of external economic policy at the Federation of German Industries. Dr. Mildner is joined by Dr. Nick Paulson, director of graduate programs at the University of Illinois' Department of Agricultural and Consumer Economics. Dr. Paulson focuses on farm and agriculture policy. Finally, William Reinch is the Scholl Chair in International Business at CSIS. Prior to his work at CSIS, Mr. Reinch was the president of the National Foreign Trade Council for 15 years. So that's our panel for this discussion on the supply chains that will hopefully bring the global economy back as we begin recovery. I'll turn it over to, over to Representative Nugabauer to delve into it. Congressman? Paul, thank you so much, and welcome to everyone. This is a very uh, uh, current topic that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we have a, a great panel, and uh, so we're going to just get right into our, our discussion. And one of the things I wanted the panelists to do, uh, each one of them for about three or four minutes, uh, is to kind of indicate what they think the most important supply chain concerns are and what their area of expertise is. And uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Milner. Well, thank you so much um, for having me. Um, this, is, uh, this discussion, this roundtable, couldn't be more more timely. Um, and uh, thanks so much for putting it together. So when I'm looking at global value chains, um, what we've been observing for quite a while is um, that the uh, globalization of value chains has been slowing down. Um, so that that is something we've already seen before the crisis, the Corona crisis. Um, and there are a few factors which account for this uh, for the slowdown. Um, one of them is, uh, is, is certainly that if you look at trade um, and manufacturing and trade and services, trade and services has gained more momentum than, than manuf trade and manufactured goods. Um, another factor is um, technology, te technological change, um, like, for example, 3D printing, which is impacting um, global value chains. And also 
um, the um, advancement of emerging economies producing more high-tech products themselves instead of importing inputs, exporting inputs, um, and so on. Apart from these economic factors and also technological factors, um, political factors, however, also already had an impact on global, global value chains, leading to more regionalization and relocalization, and those are political factors. Um, we have seen for a long, really since the last financial and economic crisis, an increase of trade barriers, stricter export control, investment screening, and many other instruments which had an impact on global value chains. And while the corona crisis will not end um, globalization, it will certainly accelerate, um, in, in my point of view, um, this, this slowdown of globalization of value chains. So what companies will have to do or are doing already, they are looking very closely at how their value chains are structured, where the vulnerabilities lie, where they have to build in redundancies, um, where they um, should relocalize um, and maybe also uh, produce more at home. At the same time, governments are doing a lot of things um, which are also pushing yes. forward this relocalization. Um, and many of these aspects, I have to say, are, are highly worrisome. So we have seen lots of new export controls, um, especially for um, medical products and protective gear. Um, we have seen a rise in binational um, uh, legislation and government procurement um, and also in the stimulus packages there is a lot in there which fosters domestic production so both um, driven by companies as well as by governments we are likely to see a, a strong restructuring of global value chains and some of it is good and some of it is certainly not going to be good and will decrease trade um, will have a negative impact on wealth and will also negatively impact employment all over the world thank you dr Malner. uh dr paulson Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for moderating. Thank you for having me. Um, so, so I'm an agricultural economist. So, um, I guess my my expertise will be will be focused on uh, supply chains as as they relate to food. Um, yeah, I, I think the the big picture uh, storyline here is, and you can read this in any number of of news outlets that have reported on this over the past few weeks. But, you know, I don't think that we're in any kind of uh, position to be concerned about um, overall scarcity of food um, uh, here in the U.S. Um, and I also don't think that we're looking at, you know, big changes in overall uh, total food demands, but where the big um, shifts are occurring that are that are stressing supply chains, at least in the uh, food supply chains, at least in the short to, to medium term, is just this huge shift um, and, and quick shift that we've been forced into away from uh, food service back to uh, primarily food at home. And, and, and in this country, we've, we've been shifting and trending the other way for a number of years. And in fact, in, in recent years, we've seen um, food away from home surpass food at home. So just shifting back um, to, to you know, primarily food at home away from, from restaurants and other food service um, systems is, is, is a big shock to get over uh, just just in a in a few week time period or even a few month time period, 
Um, so that that is causing some some supply chain issues, and and I also think it's important to separate out some of the the shorter term uh, demand shocks from from hoarding behavior, and then some of the buying behavior that we've seen that that will stabilize if if not already stabilized, um, versus some of the more moderate term um, uh, shocks on the on the on the supply side that that we might see continue to to cause. Um, issues over over the, the coming weeks and months. Um, so again, we've seen this big shift away from from food service, food away from home, restaurants uh, to to you know uh, folks primarily uh, buying larger volumes at, at grocery stores and convenience stores. Um, unfortunately, depending on the area in which you live in, uh, stores uh, may not have been able to and, and continue to be unable to, to keep up with that demand, although we're, we're seeing uh, continued adjustments to that and I think Im improvements in that and, and some of the concerns about lack of uh, available food supply at grocery stores kind of waning um, as, we, as we get multiple weeks into the, the stay-at-home orders we have across, across most of the country. Um, there's also shifts in terms of the, the product mix that consumers demand when you move away from food service to back to just cooking more at home. So we've seen a lot of that in terms of the demand for uh, different types of meat cuts. Uh, dairy products have been impacted in a big way. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of uh, reporting and, and stories on the shift back to at-home baking and impacts on things like basic staples like, like flour and eggs. Um, again, I, I think depending on where you're at in the country, whether you live in a more concentrated urban area, you're going to see some more persistent retail level issues um, versus some of our smaller communities, uh, rural communities, where it probably hasn't been um, and has not continued to be as big of a change. Um, the the other uh, thing I would maybe point out is is um, something I've seen you know reported on the news is. There's, there's a disconnect between what we see in terms of consumer uh, retail prices for food, so some of the price spikes you may have experienced uh, for, for products that, that, that are uh, at least in high short-term demand at the grocery store versus what we're seeing at, at what I will refer to as the farm gate. Um, and perhaps meat is the best example here. So we've seen meat um, fly off the shelves at grocery stores, um, higher prices, uh, but we continue to see um, declines in um, livestock prices, uh, futures markets that, that would be more indicative of what farmers are actually receiving. And, you know, we have to separate the, the short-term demand shocks at the retail level from what's going on at the farm level where we have uh, an industry, in, in the case of, uh, you know, cattle and hogs, for example, where processing slaughtering facilities were operating at close to capacity pre-COVID-19 with reductions um, in, in slaughter capacity already planned, um, while at the same time we've had relatively large, large herd numbers for, for cattle and hogs. So we've got an excess supply side at the production level, um, excess supply situation at the production level versus a, uh, um, you know, the, the, the short-term spike in demand at the retail level. And there's some, some disconnects there in terms of what, what people are seeing. Um, and then, you know, finally, just to wrap up here, I think some of the longer-term threats, again, from, from more of the production standpoint that I'm familiar with in, in agriculture, 
Um, you know, I see the the scale and the efficiency of the food system in, that we have here in this country as being a potential, uh, actually a potential weakness during this this kind of public health crisis. So we've got food processing that you know I think is is become very highly specialized and very efficient, um, but that might make it difficult to implement some of the um, you know social distancing measures and things like that within these facilities from a labor standpoint to keep things moving at the same volume. <laughs> Um, that that we that we like to see um, at the farm level, we've got kind of multiple dimensions for labor concerns. Uh, first, with respect to restrictions on on labor mobility and the importance of, of temporary immigrant workers in, in in a lot of cases for for various types of production and agriculture, um, and then also just just the, the health of of full time uh, farmers and the importance of timing to that industry. So. If we think of crop producers, which is is what we're you know focused on here in the Midwest, um, they have a very narrow window to get things done during the growing season. We're just entering the planting season here in Illinois. If a farmer um, and some of his key labor uh, people become sick, it's it's hard to say you know take take two weeks off of quarantine and and plan after that. That's that's a difficult uh, decision for farmers to make. And on the livestock side, you know these are these are very continuous. Um, operations uh, compared with you know maybe a manufacturing facility where it's maybe more feasible to temporarily shut down or scale back. I mean animals uh, continue to have to be fed, cows continue to have to be milked. So um, any kind of uh, health issues that enter the the labor um, the labor supply for these farms can be uh, pretty detrimental to their uh, continued viability. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to the moderator. Thank you, Dr. Paulson. Um, Mr. Rink? Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be with you. I I've approached this issue largely from the standpoint of the trading system and, and impacts on the trading system and on globalization. And I think there's, there's four things we need to worry about. Uh, the first is panic-induced short-term counterproductive actions. And you're seeing this develop in, in many countries, including ours. Uh, both import limits and export restrictions uh, in order to preserve, uh, uh, you know, domestic uh, supply. Uh, all of that has a, a disruptive uh, effect on supply chains, ours and everybody else's, and it produces uh, less than, less than uh, optimal op economic outcomes, and it will delay recovery. Uh, a longer-term issue is, uh, to avoid is, as Peter Navarro said at one point, uh, we don't want to go back to sleep when it is over. Uh, the, the virus has revealed uh, some supply chain vulnerabilities, particularly in the medical area. And uh, one thing we can be fairly confident about is this is all going to happen again at some point, uh, maybe next winter with the same virus. We're concerned about that. But if not, some years from now with another one, we need to be ready. And we need to use the time that we're going to have to uh, to get ready so that we're better prepared for the next one uh, than we have been for this one. Uh, the third issue is going to be, from a supply chain point of view, knowing when to restart production. And it's not just a question if you're part of a supply chain of your readiness uh, and your ability to, to recall your employees. And, and it's a question of, of uh, whether the whole supply chain up and downstream is prepared. It doesn't do you any good to be producing products if you don't have a buyer. 
uh, or if you don't have a transportation system that can get them to the buyer. And so one of the con- one of the problems that we're going to face is that recovery is going to be uneven. Uh, we didn't all get into this at the same time, and that means we're all not, we're not all going to get out of it at the same time. So what we see now, for example, is production restarting in China, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's people here or in Europe, for that matter, who are ready to receive uh, what they're producing. And so a delicate balance for supply chain managers is to figure out uh, not only when your capabilities uh, can be restored, but when you can get the whole supply chain up and running. And that may uh, be slower than you want for factors that you can't control because they're somewhere else in the chain. Uh, The last item is uh, about building resilience in the supply chain. You know, supply chain managers are, are taught focus on, uh, you know, lowest price, best quality, uh, best delivery schedules, most reliable delivery schedules. And what they're learning now is that that may not be good enough uh, and that you need to start thinking about resilience uh, as uh, an additional factor that needs to be built in. And that's going to be complicated because it's going to be, uh, it's going to increase costs uh, and it may increase time. And it's also going to require you to find uh, new suppliers, new partners. And so I think supply chain managers are going to be faced with they they not only need plan A and plan B, they may need plan C and plan D as well. And at least one of them is going to need to to focus on domestic sources of supply or near-term sources of supply. I think I think Stormy's points are right. We're going to see more of a shortening of, of supply chains and a regionalization of supply chains. That was going on anyway, uh, and this is going to accelerate that. But I think now managers are going to have to think explicitly about how do I build resilience into my supply chain. Uh, and I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, first question um, and we're talking about the supply chains and, and particularly some particular industries. Uh, on the political side, the issue of immigration has been discussed over the last few years and, and become a topic in our Congress and, and other governments around the world uh, in rethinking their immigration policy. And labor, obviously, being a very important part of the supply chain, and several industries rely heavily uh, on uh, either migrants on a temporary basis or being recruited on a permanent basis. Uh, how will these supply chain adapt to possibly a change in immigration policies that have resulted from this from the coronavirus? So, you know, this isn't an issue so much uh, where I'm located here in, in the midwestern part of the U.S., but. There's there's other types of agricultural production. Uh, you think about the southeast part of the country and uh, fruit and vegetable production there, and as well as out in California, they rely heavily on uh, temporary immigrant labor. Um, there were already existing concerns pre-COVID-19 related to uh, you know, directions that immigration policy was potentially moving in. Um, in terms of uh, you know making it more difficult to obtain those workers, there was there was already uh, headwinds, so to speak, in terms of um, some of the uh, you know, wage requirements that were put in place for some of those temporary worker uh, programs that that made it um, you know even more expensive than it had been historically to to get those workers. 
Um, I, I do think this this brings into a, brings a whole new dimension to that immigration debate in terms of you know we we had a, a set of uh, political concerns related to to migrant labor, um, and now we've added this this public or, or human health dimension to it that that could serve as another barrier uh, to getting those workers in and, and getting those workers in at a low cost. Um, you know that is one of the the reasons why we do have access to the uh, the, the the produce um, at at the at the low uh, cost levels that we do in this country and. Labor is still, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, um, expense categories for that type of production. So, I mean, anything that that impedes those workers being able to physically get here or increase the cost associated with them getting here is going to, I mean, have a big effect on on a lot of the the fresh foods that we have. That again, that it, it needs to be harvested or or it goes to waste. And there's already been you know, some reporting of, of, you know, this quick shift in, in demand channels and how that's really hitting a lot of the perishable products like uh, fruits and vegetables um, and, and dairy products that are simply being being wasted because the supply chains can't adapt as quickly um, to, to how quickly the situation has unfolded. Thank you. When you look at the countries in the European Union, all of, all of them are experiencing uh, some of the same challenges uh, that we are here in the United States. Uh, it seems like Italy may be struggling, uh, for example, pretty strongly, and Germany is, is doing better. Uh, and uh, so one of the things that you're beginning to hear is the debate of some of these countries talking about in the future making themselves more uh, self-sufficient. Uh, uh, how do you see that debate that that may be easier for some of the countries in the European Union and harder for others so how, what do you see and what do you hear the, the going forward how that discussion is going to play out for the EU uh, they're facing this right now because you've seen countries there are member states in the EU there who have not only uh, started to impose um, restrictions on uh, on exports uh, including food going back uh, to uh, uh, the agriculture sector, but they're also starting to impose uh, constraints on mobility. And it's not only about immigration into the EU, it's about movement from state to state, which, as you know, has been free uh, amongst the EU members uh, for a long time. And so that's why you've got, you know, lots of polls working uh, in the UK. I mean, the UK is has left, but it's, you know, you've got basically a, a lot of workers that have moved to other countries, and you have a lot of them crossing borders every day to their jobs. And when you've got governments, I think the Polish government was an example, putting up barriers to that, uh, you not only are inconveniencing uh, thousands of people on a personal level, you know, who, who uh, you know, <laughs> there's an article this morning about people asking about whether you know, uh, going walking your dog across a bridge into a neighboring territory was an essential service would be permitted or not. You know, in, in Europe, uh, this is a, this is actually a problem. It's not an abstraction. And when you limit labor mobility, uh, in that case, what you're going to produce are uh, unemployed people in some locations and shortages in other locations. Uh, and, uh, and it's going to simply delay uh, restarting supply chains because workers are not going to be able to get to their jobs. Thank you, uh, Bill. You know, one of the things uh, that kind of a, a goes along with this discussion is, you know, a lot of companies at, 
all through industry have adopted a just-in-time strategy for their logistics and inventory management. And what we've seen is that during this pandemic, we've caught caught short, uh, and it's been difficult to uh, kind of prime the prompt. Do you see businesses uh, changing the way they uh, handle their inventory and their uh, their manufacturing in the future? Uh, Bill, you want to you want to take that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because you're you're ahead of the curve in thinking about it, and I think it's going to be a big issue in the future. Uh, you're exactly right that that's happened. We really have gone to just-in-time uh, delivery. It's it saves uh, a lot of money. It saves on inventory costs and it uh, reduces theft and a lot of other issues. But it does uh, it does make you highly vulnerable to uh, things like this. But we actually learned this firsthand before. Uh, we learned it after 9/11, when uh, the borders were shut temporarily, and in particular the the border at Detroit and Windsor was shut. Uh, and if you're in the automobile industry, that was devastating because what you've got are parts and components flowing back and forth across that border daily. You know, I, when I, I I teach this stuff and uh, and and you know I've got a, a cool little um, slide that shows about a you know a rear axle assembly for a Chevy Equinox, as I recall. And this is a, the this thing goes back and forth across the Canadian border like seven times before it's finished, because rather than just you know have enormous inventories and bring everything to one assembly plant in Dearborn, uh, they ship it back and forth to have pieces added to it in various locations, that's actually cheaper and quicker uh, than doing it the old way. Uh, and uh, border closures get in the way of that. And what uh, right now, we're, it's not just border closures, of course, it's, it's lockdowns and shutdowns that are getting in the way of that. And I think that, that you know, supply chain managers and, and corporate executives are going to have to confront the fact that, um, that you know, they're highly vulnerable if this, if this kind of thing happens again because they don't have an ability to sustain production for very for very long. Now, you know, in the current situation, in the short run, what you've got, because everybody's locked down and basically can't go anywhere or do anything, uh, you've got a, you know, a, a, a demand uh, crash as well. So if we're not making cars, I'm not sure that for the next couple of weeks it makes a lot of difference because there's nobody going out to buy them anyway. But if you're thinking about uh, sort of economic recovery over the long term, uh, you've got to think that this does put you in a more vulnerable position. Uh, and not just, you know, for a, 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 a pandemic like we've got now, but, you know, earthquakes, uh, floods, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, all kinds of things. Uh, if you don't have an inventory, you're exposed. Uh, and I think you're going to see, uh, I think you're going to see some of the larger companies uh, not going back to where we were 20 years ago, uh, but, uh, you know, trying to do a, a little bit less just in time and a little bit more having things on hand. So the when you look at the European Union, you look at the U.S., the federal government has been able to plug a lot of holes uh, in this uh, supply chain, trying to move medical and all of those things. And the European Union doesn't have that that one government big 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 brother to fill as many gaps so can you kind of describe for us how you see uh that playing out in the european union and then as we move into the recovery uh who who will who, who takes the lead and what will be the role 
uh, of uh, the centralized governments uh, in the European Union uh, in the recovery. Thank you, Randy, for mentioning this this point. I think you're putting your finger right into the wound, so to say, of the European Union. Um, we saw that already during the last financial and economic crisis, and we see it again. The EU is lacking some of the vital policy instruments um, which are necessary to fight uh, crises, to fight um, economic downturns. And that really is a, um, a, a common fiscal policy. Um, as you all know, um, the European members have sovereignty over fiscal policy making, um, and uh, that becomes a problem during, during the crisis. Um, there's also no common health policy. Um, there's also no um, uh, joint pandemic center or pa pandemic exercise, um, and that is currently really, um, really a problem. I also have to say that I was a little bit disappointed with my own government that we were the first in the European Union um, to implement export controls for protective gear. And um, while, like, on first glance, that might be intuitively right to do something like this, um, to protect your own people, it is really fundamentally wrong, um, both from a solidarity point of view um, as well as from a global, from a regional um, value chain um, uh, point of view, because our value chains are so interconnected. German companies are producing in Italy, they are producing in Great Britain, many other countries of the European Union, and for their production, they also need protective gear, and they are producing some of the um, essential products to fight the corona crisis also in Germany. So what, what the European Union really needs to learn, um, or, or the member states really need, need to learn from this crisis, is that we need more Europe rather than less, that we need to delegate more decision-making power to the EU rather than nationalizing it. And um, relocation of production is certainly not the right, not the right answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that Germany as... Um, one of the um, really, I mean, still economically strongest country in the European Union, um, with also a, a solid and strong um, leader, Ms. Merkel, um, that we have the responsibility to go into the lead here um, and push for more Europe um, instead of less. Thank you very much. One of the things that was mentioned, I think, earlier was that this is a rolling uh, pandemic in that it's more mature in some countries, less mature in others. Some are getting close to the peak. Some are in the beginning. Some are towards the end. So when you look at, from your perspective, where, where are the holes going to be and where is, it, where is uh, uh, the most liability there, uh, the issue that needs to be, will have to be addressed? Well, let me take a stab at, at a part of it. People are starting to look at that issue uh, sectorally. And realizing that this all plays out differently for different sectors. I mean, an obvious uh, devastated sector, which is important in the United States, uh, is travel and tourism, and the associated transportation goes along with it. Um, that's probably going to be a hole for a long, a long time, because it depends not only on uh, restoring capabilities, uh, which is, I mean, it, it's not hard. If you want to go to the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon is there. It's not going away. Uh, it doesn't have to be rebuilt. It, it's a question of confidence. When are people going to feel that it's okay to travel? When are people going to feel that it's okay to fly? 
uh, or that they get in their car and go stay in a hotel. And I think that's um, that's going to be an uneven process because it's individuals. And for example, if individuals decide that uh, you know they don't want to venture outside their cocoon until there's a vaccine, uh, you're talking about a very long period of downtime. Other people are not going to decide that, and they're going to be out the minute the government uh, releases restrictions. But I think travel, tourism, transportation is a, a vulnerable sector. Um, if you look at sectors with complex uh, supply chains, and uh, electronics would be one. I think aerospace would be another one. Anything that, that involves uh, lots and lots of parts and components. Uh, automotive is probably another one. Uh, they're going to have problems restarting um, simply because of the complexity. If you have an automobile, this would not be an electric automobile, but if you have a, a normal automobile with about 30,000 parts, um, I mean, you don't have 30,000 suppliers, but you've got more than two or three. And that creates a much more complex equation that needs to be uh, started up again. So I think, you know, high-end manufacturing, complicated manufacturing is going to be uh, a difficult area. Um, and agriculture, I, I defer on that because I, I think that's got shorter supply chains and probably doesn't have the same set of problems. Yeah, I thank you, Bill. Nick, I, I was, I, yeah, go ahead, Stormy. <laughs> If I may briefly also jump in on that issue, um, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, the situation is awfully complex, but it gets even more com complex um, looking globally and at the asymmetric um, way countries are affected from the crisis and how they are going to recover from the crisis. So looking at Germany again, we are um, very export oriented. Um, our trade to GDP ratio exports and imports is 87%. So we, I mean, um, depend majorly on, on, on trade. And in the last economic crisis, we were pulled out of the crisis through trade um, because um, economic recovery um, and growth had already picked up in the emerging economies. Um, and that is not going to happen this time. Um, the emerging economies looking at Latin America, um, but also India, South Africa, and many others, um, they are behind us with regard to the crisis, and they will be still experiencing um, the crisis for quite a longer time. So we will not be able to use trade as a um, as, as an engine of, of growth again. So while some countries will be very strongly affected by the, by, um, the uncertainty um, with regard to consumption and, and the slump in consumption, um, our main um, drag down, so to say, is, is, is trade and, and how to manage that will be extremely, extremely difficult. Thank you, uh, Stormy. One of the things that, you know, we've been talking about the supply chain, but one of the things that I think will impact the supply chain is the demand chain. And I wonder, and I think everybody's trying to figure this out, is what does the world look like uh, post-coronavirus? And how will the, we all know that this is a, the economy is a consumer-generated economy, and that what, what will be the mood of the consumer? Uh, how will they feel about, like someone mentioned traveling, how will they feel about eating out still? And the, the economic damage that's done to, you know, millions of people that have 
lost their uh, employment uh, during that. So if I'm thinking about ramping my business up, I have to have to have some sense of what does the demand for my my product look like in the next three, six, nine months, and then there's that looming that there could be another round of this uh, next next fall. Uh, what, what, you're going what to be, you're going to be uh, very very cautious. You're going to be very cautious. I think that's what you're, we're going to see a lot of conservative planning on this. I agree, and I also think that we see, will see a lot more digitalization and a lot more digital services. Yes, that's a very good point. That, that actually we probably should have mentioned before. I mean, there are some companies that are that are doing very well right now. Zoom is the obvious one, um, and it, one of the interesting questions is going to be uh, now that we will have had, you know, in most cases, more than a month. In some cases, two months or more of essentially online work. Uh, how quickly are people going to go back to uh, the old way? Uh, you know, the, the people have carved out new paths. Uh, and uh, you may find companies that have decided that this actually, in some respects, works better for them. It reduces their vulnerability. Uh, it reduces their costs uh, in, in both big and, and small ways. I mean, I, I, I just have gone through a thing with uh, – I'm a, affiliated with a law firm, and the law firm has been debating uh, whether they should uh, – uh, you know, they, they pay for parking in, in the building – and they've been debating whether they should cancel their parking contract for a couple of months. Uh, and the answer is, yeah, they should, because nobody can go to the office anyway. So there isn't any parking. So why are we paying for it? I think, you know, as companies begin to think about uh, cost-saving opportunities, you may see uh, more of that. Uh, you've had a, seen in a very short period of time a big investment, a big turn to online education as schools have closed. Um, I don't think that you're going to see um, uh, online education becoming routine for, you know, primary schools or elementary schools uh, or high schools, but uh, you may see it uh, uh, becoming a much bigger factor at, at higher levels of education. And that develop, that requires new skill sets. It requires different software. Uh, you know, it's going to uh, stimulate some industries uh, and, uh, and, and hurt others. And if I yeah, may, I think may Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead, Stormy. <laughs> and I just wanted to add another example um, from manufacturing. Um, what I think we will see a lot more after the crisis, um, <clears throat> bigger com companies, for example, in the aviation industry, but also with regard to um, bigger machines, they are not selling the product anymore, but they are selling the service and the maintenance of the product. Um, and I, and, and um, they've been working a lot on creating digital twins um, of a machine or a turbine so that you can actually do the maintenance from um, somewhere, somewhere far further remote. And I think this um, digital twin production and the maintenance through a digital twin twin and um, through somebody on the ground um, uh, get, getting um, getting the um, 
uh, tips what to do with regard to the maintenance. I think we are going to see this um, not just in the big companies anymore, but also um, in the smaller and medium medium-sized companies. Um, it, because we are getting now also used to not being able able to travel, and we are getting so much more used to um, the communication through uh, digit, yeah, digital means. Um, and then with regard to the advancement. Um, on digitalization um, and um, also the advancement on data flows, um, I think that is that is going to be the future for for production and maintenance um, of of machines and so on. How much does the development of a vaccine and uh, ease uh, and increasing the ability and availability of testing going to have uh, in uh, the economy as we move forward? Is that is that going to be an accelerator if we can get that sooner rather than later? And how how will uh, the people uh, companies ad- adapt that into their business plans? I think it will help get back to normal. Yes. And I guess we're all trying to figure out what the new normal looks like too, aren't we? Well, yeah, that's really what we've been talking about, and I think we. All, all, all of us have suggested some ways in which it might be different. But if you can produce a, uh, a vaccine, if you will, that's going to. I think that will, that will accelerate. If you can do that quickly, which I'm not sure you can, but if you can do it quickly, that will accelerate the recovery process because it will make people feel more comfortable uh, about their personal situations. Um, at the same time, I think um, I, I absolutely agree. Um, it w- would speed up recovery immensely. At the same time, I think this is this this really has has been a socio-economic um, crisis with a lot of, I mean, personal felt impact. So I think that even if there is a vaccine for this um, for, for 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 this um, health crisis, um, it I mean we still know. <laughs> that there might be other health issues in the future, um, other epidemics in the future, and that still might have an impact on how we are going to work, behave, travel um, in in the future. And I think we are not going to go back to what it was before the crisis. Um, I I also think that that governments are going to um, take a lot of lessons learned out of this. Um, At least I hope so, um, that there will be more of an international um, international effort, coordination, um, that there will be more um, pandemic exercises, more information sharing um, on these issues um, to prevent, um, it, I mean, to at least prevent that the spread is as, as fast um, as, as, uh, as this time. Well, I want to thank our panelists. I think this has been a very interesting discussion, a very timely discussion. Uh, I want to thank those people that participated, uh, that are listening to our virtual roundtable, uh, and appreciate you uh, sharing part of your day with us. Uh, this this is an interesting time in our our, our country, in our world, and uh, I appreciate the panelists' uh, very candid discussion. And uh, with that, I will say uh, goodbye. <laughs>